The reading today is from Colossians 1.15 to 2.15, reading from the NRSB. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, he- or on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission, that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, That is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Although I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision, 
by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Thank you very much for that reading, Pete. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there, isn't there? Let's, let's pray. And pray for me as I try and speak on that. Um, Father God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you, for your, thank you for the cross of your son, Jesus. Thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit on us. And thank you for this message that all the powers of darkness cannot stand before your cross. And be with us all as we um, are gathered around your word. Help us to see you more clearly. Amen. Well, a very good morning again, and welcome to Cairns Rose. Um, I just want to start with a verse just before, uh, that comes just before the reading that Pete read for us. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These are the words that Paul chooses to write to the very new, very inexperienced Colossian church. People he'd never met, but had been praying for constantly. This is how he explains what has happened to them, the change in allegiance that has occurred when they gave their lives to Christ. They used to be part of one kingdom ruled by darkness, where they worshipped idols of the Greek gods or took part in secret mystery cults. But now through what Jesus has done for them, there's been a change of citizenship. They're no longer part of that old kingdom. They've handed in their passports. Instead, they belong to the kingdom of God, which is invading and overtaking the old kingdom, swelling every day as the gospel spreads across the known world. And for this, Paul gives thanks to God for the Colossians. But he's also concerned for them because he knows that the powers of darkness have not given up on them. And if they're given the chance, they'll enslave them again. Now, many people think that Colossians was written because there were already heretics infiltrating the Colossian church. Uh, some people think that perhaps Paul just knew they were on their way because they'd been following him around wherever he went. The truth is we don't really know for sure, for certain at least. But either way, we do know that Paul was worried about these new believers. They were sincere, they were passionate, but they were perhaps a little bit naive. And Paul was worried that when these false teachers did arrive, or maybe they were already there, the Colossians would be easy prey for them. And what he's most worried about, it seems, is that these false teachers would devalue the work of Christ. They might pay him some lip service to get their foot in the door, but ultimately, they're going to teach the Colossians that there's more to Christian faith than faith in Christ. Can you imagine that? More to Christian faith than the faith in Christ. 
Paul was worried that they would insist on circumcision, that the Colossians follow Jewish dietary laws, and that they would try and tempt them with secret mysteries, uh, mystical experiences, things of that nature. And his solution to this problem is really simple. Let the Colossians see who Jesus is. Give them a bigger vision of what he's done for them. Show them Christ in all his glory. And when the Colossians see Christ, when they really see him, they're not going to be able to look away. So Paul starts by building on what these young Christians already know. They know Jesus, the Son, has redeemed them. That somehow by his death on, his, on, on the cross, their sins have been forgiven. They know that. So Paul goes on to say that this Son is the image of the invisible God. The one who makes God known. So when we look at Jesus, we see what God is truly like in a way that we don't see anywhere else or in anyone else. What the heretics are offering, or maybe will offer later, Paul calls a mere shadow. Now, has anyone seen like a shadow, uh, shadow show, like puppets, shadow puppets? Yeah, shadows can sometimes be useful, can't they? They can tell us that there's something there. They give us a rough outline of the person they belong to. We might be able to tell some details about the person based on their shadow, how big they are, maybe whether they're male or female, but we probably can't tell much else. A shadow cannot truly show us what God is like. It can't show us his face. But Christ is not a shadow. Christ is the image of God, what Paul calls the substance beyond the shadow. He has made the invisible God visible to the Colossians. But the heretics wanted to make God invisible again. So Paul goes on to say that this Jesus is more than just a redeemer, more than just the image of God. He tells the Colossians that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, when Paul calls Christ the firstborn, he's not saying that he was created first because he was there at the beginning. All things were created through him. He's not a created being. He's the firstborn in the sense that he is over creation, that it all belongs to him, that one day he's going to inherit all of it. What Paul wants to remind the Colossians, really, is that Christ is not like their old pagan gods. He's not just another rival deity that they can choose from, one amongst many. He's the only God there is. And that was pretty scandalous at the time, and it's still pretty scandalous today. Because we live in a culture that has been called post-truth. You all heard that expression, post-truth? Yeah, usually used about politics, but... Um, one person's truth is as good as another. I'm just telling my truth. Probably heard people say things like that. Words like right or wrong or claims to an objective source of truth, they're considered pretty arrogant these days, even bigoted maybe. And it was the same for the early Christians because they too lived in a culture that had all these incompatible belief systems rubbing alongside each other. They too lived in a world that treated truth like the pick and mix aisle at Woolworths, for those of you who can remember that. You just 
go in and pick the bits you like and ignore the rest. That's how it works. But like those early Christians, we need to embrace the scandal of proclaiming one God, one truth. Because Jesus suffers no rivals. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that includes, says Paul, all thrones, dominions, rulers and powers. What does he actually mean by those words? Well, we're all, well, lots of us are modern scientific people. Our first instinct is to say that these powers are just the economic, social and political structures that dominate so much of human life. So perhaps Paul is talking about governments and empires, or the forces of trade and globalisation, or corrupt institutions like slavery or the caste system. Maybe that's what he means by the powers. Real material things that dominate and control people. And I think perhaps that is part of what Paul means. But the powers are more than this, because what the early Christians knew, that we in the West have forgotten, is the world is not just spiritual. It's not just material, sorry. It's also spiritual. So behind these visible things, like money and power and politics, there are invisible spiritual forces that act upon our world and which control the actions and beliefs of people. And many of these powers are totally opposed to God and to his kingdom. These are the powers of darkness that Christ has rescued the Colossians from. Before they became Christians, the Colossians lived in fear of these powers. They did everything they could to appease them, to satisfy them, to keep them at bay. Pagan religion, magic, astrology, fate, karma, tarot, the list goes on really. We could add modern examples, manifesting, power of putting out positive energy into the universe and hoping that some of it comes back to you. You're familiar with these, you might have seen them on social media. These are all attempts to satisfy what Paul calls the elemental spirits of the universe, the basic principles, to bend them to human purposes. And the Colossians have been set free from these things by Christ. But the false teachers have come along and they've claimed to be able to control them, to extract knowledge from them. But what they really want to do is to drag the Colossians back under the sway of the powers, to rob them of their freedom in Christ. And Paul is not having it. These powers, whatever they are, are not Christ's equals. They're not Christ's rivals. They were created by him and are in rebellion against him. What can they possibly offer the Colossians that Christ himself has not already given them? Well, part of what the heretics are offering, or what we think they're offering, is more mystery. Because they felt that because Christ had made God known, had made the invisible visible, the Christian faith was just a bit dull, maybe? They missed the excitement of many pagan cults. But Paul's answer is that the gospel is full of mystery. The mystery of the incarnation. How did the fullness of the deity come to dwell in a single person? The mystery of the atonement, the resurrection. The mystery that even now Christ was living in the Colossians, that today he's living in us by his Holy Spirit. Paul says that true mystery is not to be found in secret rituals, human traditions, or from other spiritual powers, whether good or evil. The mystery at the heart of the universe 
is a person, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, we have been brought to fullness. And we'll never get to the bottom of this mystery, not if we had a thousand lifetimes to do it. But maybe if we've been Christians for a long time, we might feel tempted to look for more. Surely we might think there must be more to the life of faith than this. Surely it's meant to be more exciting, more mysterious. Shouldn't there be more traditions, more techniques, more secrets, more sacrifices, more rules, more rituals? Perhaps if I go to this conference or that retreat or this training program, finally I'll learn the secret to being a real Christian. Finally I'll get that spiritual buzz I've been looking for. Well, of course, the danger with this sort of thinking is that we become like the false teachers at Colossae. We end up playing yes and with our faith. You all come across the yes and game? Anyone been to improv shows? They do it there. Okay, a few maybe. The idea is that someone says something and then the next person builds on it. So the Colossians might say, Jesus is Lord. And the heretics would say, yes and angels. Yes, and circumcision. Yes, and holy days. They add more and more things that are necessary, necessary in inverted commas, for Christian faith, until Christ himself is almost forgotten. They make him little more than the warmer pact, the starter before the main course. But Paul is clear that in Christ, we have all that we need this side of heaven. We need no other spiritual intermediary. Nobody else to stand between us and God. Many Christians make the mistake of praying to saints or to Mary. I've seen people do it. They don't believe deep down that Christ is enough. And they try to top him up with other spiritual beings. And just across the road, we have a group of people who every week gather to speak to the spirits of the dead. Others try to pry wisdom from angelic or demonic beings. But this is exactly what the powers opposed to God want us to be doing. Because they know that to deny that Christ is sufficient is to deny that he's supreme. I'm going to say that again. To deny that Christ is sufficient is to deny that he's supreme. And to do that, to call anything but Christ supreme, is idolatry. We're not playing an improv game here. The answer is not Christ and, it's Christ. Full stop, the end. But it's easy to understand, I think, why the Colossians were so afraid of these evil powers. Because if they're actively working through the systems of money and power and politics that dominate our world, then we could easily feel powerless against them, couldn't we? They're so much bigger than us. What can we do against such things? And many of us can testify that these powers can be oppressive on a personal level as well. I'm sure many of us have felt under spiritual attack at one time or another. I know I have. I've heard other people describe really vivid experiences involving sights and sounds. Sometimes it's more subtle than that, like an overwhelming temptation to do something you know is wrong in the days leading up to doing something for God. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe it's intrusive thoughts that you know aren't yours, uh, but you can't shift. Voices that tell you you're worthless, that God doesn't want you. 
If, if any of that sounds familiar to you, hear these words again. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Did you catch that? When Jesus died on the cross, the powers and authorities that had conspired to put him there were totally defeated. They had him stripped, they had him paraded, they had him displayed for public contempt, but he turned the tables on them. Because at the cross, Christ stripped them of their power, paraded them like prisoners of war, and held them up for the false gods that they are. The powers no longer have treasure to tempt us with or terrors to frighten us with. They're beaten and they know it. They know that the cross is the place of their defeat. And so they're going to do anything they can to distract us from that. They'll get us to focus on something else, anything else. It doesn't really matter. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's superstition, maybe it's sin. It doesn't matter so long as we're not looking at Christ crucified. So Paul's message for us today is the same that he had for those Colossians all those years ago. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is enough. He is everything. Like the Colossians, we need to remember who we are, who we belong to. Because like them, our citizenship has changed. We no longer live under the rule of the powers. We're no longer members of that kingdom of darkness. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So when we share the good news of the cross with people who haven't heard it yet, when we work and pray to transform unjust systems, we are fighting spiritual battles. We're taking part in a war. Participating in the invasion of God into his rebellious creation. In every place, every moment in which we proclaim Christ King, we push back the powers of darkness. And today we're celebrating Pentecost, of course, which is the moment when the Holy Spirit was given in power to the church. So if the cross was the decisive battle, Pentecost is the beginning of the end of evil. If the cross is the Battle of Britain, John, you're going to like this analogy, the cross is the Battle of Britain, then Pentecost is D-Day. But just because the powers are beaten and, living, and are living on borrowed time, it doesn't mean they've stopped fighting. They'll still try to lead the church astray through false teaching or cripple it so it can't fight effectively. Which is why, like the Colossians, we need to test every spirit, every new idea or fad that comes our way. This is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. We can test them as individuals, but most importantly as a church, as a community of Christ's people. The powers are still out there. They're still dangerous, but we don't need to fear them. I don't want you to leave today feeling afraid of these powers. Because their time is coming to an end. Christ is the victor. And we have this beautiful promise at the end of Romans 16, which I want to finish with. 
God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.